the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Well, good morning, everyone. If you, have, if you have your Bibles, and I encourage you, uh, especially through this series and this time of the year, to grab a Bible in, in front of you and open up to Mark chapter 1. So uh, whether you have your Bible, uh, a tangible Bible that you bring, a Bible that's maybe in our pew, or an uh, electronic Bible that you use through a Bible app or Bible gateway, whatever it is, I want to encourage you to... Uh, to open up uh, through this series, uh, you know, oftentimes and especially lately, uh, I know a lot of the messages have been fairly topical, so they've been a, a different parts of the scripture, and, and so we've had a lot of our texts on the screen. But as we begin every year, and, and really about the 10 years that I've been here, we've every year that we have began with a gospel, uh, one of the four gospels, and we preach that gospel uh, on into Easter. Okay, so it's Mark's turn this year. We haven't actually been in Mark since 2016. So we're going to begin and uh, spend some time uh, in the Gospel of Mark in the upcoming weeks, uh, all the way on into Easter. And so we will we won't obviously be able to go completely in detail with everything in this book. Um, but we will be going through and in, in, in doing more expository teaching. That means preaching directly from this text and the things around it, um, rather than getting really topical and being at different parts of the Bible. So um, soon I will have a kind of a reading list if you want to follow along. I don't completely have my whole plan for, for this whole series yet, so once I do, I'd like to give you guys some scriptures that you can be reading. So a great way, obviously, to start off the new year, to get back in the Bible, okay, to begin reading through scripture again yourself and to be able to have a, a common task that we're all getting through as we a simple goal of reading through the gospel of Mark. And so I just want to begin, even before we begin this series, I'm going to want to start off by beginning uh, with a word of prayer this morning. So let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for the privilege to share your word. I thank you for each and every one that is here today. But I pray that today would not just be another day. Lord, it wasn't for me even just a few moments ago at about 7 o'clock this morning as I had prepared some facets of this message, but you began to speak. You began to show me things that, that applied to my life, but that I know, Lord, that you want to speak to those in front of me. Lord, your word desires to bring about change, not just hearing, not just an acknowledgement. Well, that was a good message, but Lord, your word is here to bring about change. And in a place like this, we can be changed if we're willing, if we're ready to hear your word and ready to receive. So all across this church and even through Facebook as well, for those that are hearing this through podcast or even after this Sunday morning on January 9th, and may your word bring forth fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, so again, uh, is, is, is even as I prayed, you know, in, 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 I, I had a, a constant theme, um, or a theme that I'd already prepared that we'll get to a sermon title in just a minute, but, but you know, I really will have a subtitle that I'll get to here. What I was trying to say is that the Lord just was even speaking this morning and all of the deeper things 
that are in this first chapter of Mark that, you know, been studying the Bible for 20 years and I hadn't really seen before. So I was, uh, I was awakened by the Lord just through this text this morning, and I hope that you are too. And so always like as we start this series, I'd like to give you a little bit of background just about the book of Mark. It won't take too long with this, but just want you to understand where it fits in with all the other gospels. You guys have heard the term, have you ever heard the term synoptic gospels before? S-Y-N, a few other letters after that. S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C, synoptic gospels, okay. Um, though, you might know what the synoptic gospels are, just curious. Okay, so those three are are Mark, Matthew, and Luke, okay? John is the outlier, okay? What we mean by synoptic gospels was that these three gospels were were familiar with each other. That means that that they they were familiar with a common source, and they were likely written with a common source in mind, okay? That common source is historically thought of as Q, Yes, that's all it's thought of as Q. You guys ever heard of Q before? Okay, it's kind of a, a you know a cool gangbanger name you can have if you want. But this is a, a name that they used to call this common source for all the scripture. They did, that that everyone was familiar with Q. There's debate about whether Mark is Q, which Mark is not. But, but I mean, well, I, sh- I can't. I'm not going to say that exclusively. There's debate of whether Mark itself, the Gospel of Mark itself, is the Q source. But what is concluded is that the Gospel of Mark is, is believed to be the very first gospel, the very first gospel that was written down, and that definitely that Matthew and Luke would have been familiar with the Gospel of Mark. Okay? So other key, so, so the, the key thing I want you to, although Mark is not first in your Bible, Mark is first chronologically, meaning it was the first one that was actually written. Okay? The other thing that many people don't know about Mark is that Mark is really, most scholars believe that Mark is Peter's gospel. This means that Mark was Peter's penman, and so he was the guy that wrote. John Mark was the guy that wrote for Peter. Okay, most scholars agree on this that this is really kind of Peter's gospel um, more than anything else. So it could have been called the Gospel of Peter, but please don't take that exclusively. There's still some debate about that as well. But the language and the style, um, it's actually written. Uh, in really, really poor Greek, which I'll kind of explain with a lot of grammatical errors in the original Greek, and so I'll explain that in just a second. But we see some themes here, this idea of suffering servant, this idea of Jesus being the Messiah, he's the savior of mankind, Mark of all mankind, right? So Mark is some, some kind of a central piece where Matthew gets into the Jewishness of Jesus, how Jesus was truly the Jewish Messiah, and Luke gets into all these details that goes into how the gospel had now come for all of the Gentiles. Okay, Luke emphasizes all the common folk, you know, how they got, were getting saved and experienced this. Uh, uh, Matthew emphasizes how, how in so many ways how Jesus fulfilled what was prophesied of the Jewish Messiah. Mark is very central to both of them. You see the common person, you see him going to the Jews as well. You see both of these pieces in Mark, which is why it's believed that this was a first, and one of the many reasons why it's believed that this was a first. And so when I came up with this title, I'll call this the first title. When you read this and you learn that it's kind of like not really written in the best grammatical Greek like Luke is, and, you know, Luke was like this phenomenal uh, Kone Greek kind of style or of, of, of how it was written very, written very professionally. That's not the way this gospel is written. And as many people believe it to be Peter's gospel, and it just kind of jumps into the story without worrying too much about all the details like Luke does, you just kind of imagine, if you want to put that title slide up there, that this chapter right here 
It's like Mark's campfire opening. It's like, it's just like these stories you tell. Like, listen, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you how crazy this was, all right? And this is kind of the style you get from Peter, that Peter is just, just so blown away by what has just taken place in his life. And now you're sitting around a fire listening to Peter tell this story of his gospel, okay? Peter's not worried about all the dates and getting everything right. Peter just wants to tell you who Jesus was to him. And so now you're going to see these different facets in this text that are, that are, just, that are just loaded um, with, with, in, with internal truth, with truth that, that, if you don't re- that if you don't read into this a little bit, you, you miss some things, okay? And so, but there is a structure, even just in this first chapter, that, that Mark is revealing to us. So we're going to begin with three things that Peter shares with us in Mark's campfire opening, all right? So the first is this idea of preparing the way, okay? That Pam read this text for us, and it's a good place to start, all right? So it all began with this crazy guy in the, in the desert eating locusts and wild honey, all right? This guy named John the Baptist, all right? Now, which is great, we actually, you know, who's doing children's church this morning, Lance doing children's church this morning, we actually got this all planned. So when I taught this, they're actually downstairs eating real locusts and wild honey this morning too. We're still bees flying around it and everything. We just wanted them to have the experience. But see, this is what this was like. You have to imagine this kind of crazy guy that wasn't doing uh, the common religious things of the, of the day, but he was very sold out for the living God. Now, many people believe John the Baptist was an Essene. Um, there's still, of course, debate on whether that's true. But the Essenes were kind of a more radical sect um, that were a bit more isolated from the common culture. Like the Pharisees were, were part of the common culture, although, of course, they separated themselves in many ways. But everybody was familiar with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the Essenes kind of lived out of way uh, from the culture. And so some people believe that John the Baptist was the Essene. But with a bigger thing is this type of baptism, okay? Mikveh's and baptism were things people were familiar with in that culture. But the, the, the familiar baptisms would have been baptisms of cleansing. Uh, you go, if there was different laws in the Old Testament about when, whether you, when you had to be cleansed, and some people would just do a cleansing because, I don't know, I probably sinned somewhere, or did something wrong, I need to go get baptized so I can feel clean again, okay? So there was this idea of baptism for cleansing, but there's also a common idea of a baptism for conversion, a baptism that I'm now going to be part of your sect. I'm now going to be a Pharisee. I'm now going to be a Sadducee. I'm now going to be in a city. I'm now going to be baptized into a new group of people, okay? So those are the two common baptisms that were taking place in that day. Well, here's what I want you to hear, church, is that this baptism was very different. It wasn't about becoming part of being a Pharisee, a Sadducee. It wasn't about getting clean. Anybody know what John the Baptist called this baptism of? It's in this text, too. It's a baptism of a word that starts with the letter R. Repentance. A baptism of change. A baptism that says, I'm ready to change and willing to change. See, John the Baptist was this crazy guy that knew what was going on. Jesus affirms him 
as the Elijah of the first coming. We talked about Elijah this week. Many, there's, there's always this messianic idea that Elijah is going to come and prepare the way. Well, now modern scholars believe that's twofold. John the Baptist was the Elijah for the first coming, and some people believe that Elijah himself is going to come back before the second coming of Christ because Elijah never died. Elijah was taken to heaven in a whirlwind. And so just some cool things to think about. But the point is that John the Baptist was the guy that knew what was going on in this point in time. And he's calling them to a baptism of change. So what is unique, the, the, the alternative you know, title that I want to come up with, it would have been, the, the better title for today's message would have been called The Crowd and the Call. All right? The Crowd and the Call. Now, even when John the Baptist is having this baptism, many people are going out trying to figure out what, what, what this is all about, what this guy's doing. And there's religious people, there's Pharisees, there's Sadducees there just ready to accuse him of stuff and, and, and call this guy crazy. And there's other Jews, there's other, not, you know, there's other Gentiles there that are participating in this baptism. And it's just this, this, this crazy thing. And a lot of people did not know what they were getting into. But John the Baptist is saying, come and be baptized, uh, a baptism of repentance, a baptism of turning away, a baptism of change. And I now baptize you with water, but someone is coming whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the truth is that many people, even in that crowd, who received John's baptism that day, before Jesus was baptized, really had no idea what they were getting into. And, but faith is like that sometimes. People who said yes to, to Christ at some point in their life, they really, they felt like it was the right thing to do, but maybe they really didn't know what they were getting into. And that's the truth about all of us. We really don't completely know exactly what it is we're signing on to when we say, yes, I'm going to be a follower of Christ. And the truth is the Lord accepts them both like most who were coming out for the, John's baptism in that day. Faith does not begin with all of the answers. So, the, the, this, I mean, there's, I remember um, being so uh, frustrated, I guess I, I should say, it, when um, I kind of came, when I moved back to this area after being in Cleveland and had a, kind of a radical change in, in my life and, and starting to hear some of my friends who had, um, become Christ followers, you know, that, that I, people that I grew up with. And I'd ask their story, so, so, tell, me, so tell me what happened. And then the, the stories would be something like, man, I went to this church for the first time, the lights came down, and the music came on, and it was just awesome. And I was hooked. And I'm like waiting for the rest of the story, <laughs> you know, because that's really like all that it was. They signed on to something. They didn't completely know what they were getting into. Now, I have some of those stories where those people, and then, then, then it becomes, well, at this point in my life, I want this for my kids. You know, I want my kids to be a part of a church. I want them to be connected to something that's, that's good and healthy. And, and, and I've, seen about, I've seen it go probably about 75-25. About 75% of those people are really no longer Christ followers. They're really not active in a church. And, and faith has become very, very low on our priority list. And others from that moment have had some kind of a life change that has propelled them into a pursuit of the living God. So I want you to understand 
there's always been, just as there was on this day for John the Baptist, there's always been a crowd, but there's also been a call. We're going to dig into that a little bit deeper, but this right here is Mark saying, you know, John is preparing the way for the Jesus who was to come. And what was he doing to prepare the way? He was telling everyone there, this is not a baptism of conversion. This is not a baptism of cleansing. It's almost as if he's looking at it, looking them in their eyes, like, like the, the Lord through the Spirit is looking in all of your eyes. Is this one is about change. If you think you're going to be able to do this, and change is not going to happen to you, this is never going to make sense. And you're always just going to be a part of the crowd, and yes, it be part of the Christian status quo crowd. So we're going to unpack that a little bit more in some more of these things. So, so this is preparing the way. The next piece that we see Mark emphasize, that we see Peter emphasize in this campfire, this, this whole campfire opening that he's given to this gospel, comes the second piece is private prayer in Mark one thirty-five through 37. I'll take a drink of water and then I'm going to read that text. Mark one thirty-five. Actually, not through 37. I'm going to go through 39 if you got your Bibles. Mark 135 through 39. Mark 135 through 39. Here's what it says. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So Mark makes a point here to mention the private prayer life of Jesus. And it's, it's great that Mark does that. Mark's not the only gospel writer that does that. Of course, Matthew and Luke do this as well. They make a point to emphasize that Jesus, yes, the Son of God, got away to lonely places of prayer. I feel like I mentioned that a lot in previous weeks. You guys know my favorite thing to say is that there's two times a day that you, as a man or a woman of God that you have the most control of. Those two times a day are the very first time and the very first moment you wake up and, and the, the, the time before you go to bed. I mean, because you always have the ability to adjust your first, you, what time you get up, you always have the ability to adjust what time you go to bed. And so it's always great for us to be men and women of prayer that, that recognize that we do whatever we want to say about the busyness of our life. We have the ability to create a consistent devotional life. And that's something that nobody else will do for you. It's always your choice and always within your domain to do it. And so this is an example we see time and time again in Scripture. But I want to get on to a couple of the things that are going on here in this passage. First of all, do you notice that this is Jesus, the Son of God? This is Jesus, the Son of God, the one that we have kind of like have the perception that like everybody just thought he was perfect all the time and everybody was just amazed by him. But if you've read the Bible, you know that that's not true. So here he is, he's in prayer, okay? And people come to him and like, hey, what are you doing, man? There's people here that want to see you. Y'all ever felt that way? You're doing the right thing and then it's still not enough? 
You've set aside maybe a little bit of time for you, maybe a little bit of time for some self-care, some time to be renewed and refocused. And people are like, what are you doing? We got this going on. You need to talk to me. You need to respond to these texts. You need to get on Facebook and post a couple things and respond to the posts you haven't responded to yet. Come on, you're such a rude person. People have posted. You haven't liked it yet. Yeah, this is the twisted, stupid stuff that we do in our heads sometimes. But Jesus is having a moment with God, and people, um, people are annoyed because he's not there. And there's this assumption that there's all these people, Jesus, that want to see you. And now in this moment, your ministry can expand. And so I'm looking deeper into this text and seeing what, 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 what a lot of the, uh, the scholars are writing about this, what a few different commentaries are saying about this, and, and noticing that Jesus is actually a moment of frustration here. Because we see this idea that's not just here in this passage, that, that Mark... Peter, right, likes to mention throughout all of his gospel is called the messianic secret, okay? This really confusing thing that Jesus does that seems very confusing to our Christian culture today when Jesus says something like, now that you've been healed, don't tell anyone of what has just happened to you. Y'all ever read those pieces in the Bible and been kind of confused? Like, why, why would he want people to know about this? Well, many people say this is exactly what he's praying about right now. The now that he's done, by the way, surrounding this passage, before this passage, we see miracles. I'm going to get to the miracles next. But but he's kind of sandwiched in between a time of him performing miracles. And he's noticing that now people are getting their fill. They're, They're experiencing the supernatural. And they're beginning to pursue Jesus for what he can, be, he can give them. He's beginning to draw a crowd of people that want something from him. Very different crowd than perhaps John the Baptist was trying to create. The message that John the Baptist was trying to communicate, that to follow this guy, you're going to have to be willing to change. I want something. I want my healing. I heard this guy could do crazy stuff. I want, to get my, I want to find and get my way in there. And that was the kind of crowd he was drawing. So you notice what Jesus says after his time of prayer and after they come and report that all these people in the city where he just was want to see him. Jesus says, let's leave this place. This is getting out of hand. These people are wanting something that actually really won't be that good for them. They're wanting their fill of spirituality, but they're not recognizing who I really am and what it's truly going to take to follow me. See, these are the things that the Lord kind of reveals to us even just just in these texts. There's something really powerful here about this because here we hear this theme again of the crowd and the call. Because what the Lord wants... Um, what the Lord wants is an intimate, personal relationship with each one of them. So today, now let's take this right now to this moment in our culture. And hear me for a minute, church. Today, the crowd still stands in our way. The crowd of, uh, of common status quo Christianity 
still stands in the way of an intimate personal relationship. But some, this crowd sometimes, because America is kind of like post-evangelized in some way, shape, or form, Americans have heard the gospel in, in some fashion, but oftentimes they just don't know what it means personally to them. They know that they're supposed to say a prayer somewhere. They know that they're supposed to go to church at some time, but they don't know what the calling of God is on their life and how he desires to be uh, within them and their experience his power, his peace, and pursue him with their life. And so, so this peace is, is oftentimes undervalued because these other things that I want to talk to you about now that stand in the way. First off, I don't have these on the slides. So you're going to have to listen and take notes in that little section, of, by the way, in your bulletin that we said sermon notes. So you can put those there. The first one is Christian entitlement. Do you think Christian entitlement exists today? Well, I've gone to church for for 20-some years now, and I'm a regular tither. God owes me something, doesn't he? I ought to get something in return for all that I've done, and I serve regularly in the church, and, and, you know, I'm owed something back in return. Isn't, Isn't that the way we think that it works sometimes? There's this transactional analysis that's supposed to take place. And oftentimes, that's why, church, part of the Christian culture crowd is rooted in Christian entitlement. That I keep coming because I believe if I keep coming, then naturally good things are going to happen to me. And that's not completely untrue according to Scripture because the Lord says he will bless you. But if that's the primary reason of our pursuit, it's only going to create a minimalist form of Christianity, a minimalist form of of salvation. And so which brings me exactly to the second one. This idea of Sunday morning faith, which is the minimalist which is the minimalist pursuit of Christ. This Sunday morning faith, I think Brad Paisley puts it really well in his song called uh, I believe it's called She's Everything I've Ever Wanted. She's a Saturday out on the town and a church girl on Sunday. She's a cross around her neck and a cuss word because it's Monday. That, that this faith thing is really just something I do on Sunday. It doesn't really apply to anything else in my life. But man, I'm really spiritual. I'm really spiritual on Sundays. Look out for me on Sundays. I know all those hymns and I know the right things to say. I know the things to say when you shake somebody's hands and when to say amen in a sermon. And this status quo, minimalist faith is the crowd in our common culture today. The crowd that Jesus was concerned about. That this would just be all about something that you want, that you can get from God, and not about a transformation. And so finally... The third thing here, not the next point, but the third thing here with, with this idea of the crowd was this, and in church we got to talk about this one, right, was the idea of tradition. Tradition. The crowd that says this is the way we've always done it. And the question we have to ask in those moments is, is the way that you've always done it, is it working? Is it producing spiritual change in your life? And is it producing spiritual change in others? 
See, I like the, I like the um, this wasn't mine, another author had, had come up with this illustration about our traditions. And I like how he uses it as a trampoline, okay? We have a trampoline in my house, and I'm proud to say that after four attempts, I have finally figured out a way to, to keep my trampoline in the ground without damaging other people's property when the winds come. It took four different tries, and finally we dug that thing up and, and got it in there, and now it's been through the wind, and, and I'm really proud to say it hasn't hurt, harmed anything. It's never damaged anybody else's property, just mine multiple times, okay? But, but, but imagine like a trampoline, like where we want to invite other people to, you know, we're on this journey, we're jumping up and down, and where we found something that, we're, a structure, a way of faith that works for us, and then we like to invite others to jump up and down on it, and then we get to a point where we think, man, I don't know if I can do this anymore, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really, you know, I'm, I'm, I just don't have the energy that I used to, and we like to step off, but we really want to make sure we have other people on the trampoline, and then these other people start jumping on the trampoline, and we're like, hey, they're having way too much fun, and they're not jumping like I used to jump. And y'all need to get the heck off the trampoline, all right? Sometimes that's the idea that we have about tradition. That when we pass on the tradition, it's got to look just like it always has for us. But actually, that can be a crowd mentality that's more about you. And more about keeping things the way that work for you, even if you don't give a rip, rather whether they're working for the next generation. Come on, I'm preaching today. I don't know if you're listening. But this is a problem, church. It's a problem in this little town. It's what we see happening in churches all across our our little village here. Tradition is great if it's something that can be passed on with a passion, something that can be passed on with some genuineness, with some authenticity that says, let me show you, get back up here yourself and how this works for me and what God is still doing in my life in this moment. Can we join others? Can we invite others to this journey? Can we invite others to this tradition? Or is the tradition something that is standing in our way? Do you see what I'm saying? It's not intrinsically wrong or right. But it's what we have made of it that determines whether it's, a, it's an obstacle or whether it's a springboard. Something that many, many others can come and join us on. So finally... The last piece, the last point this morning. Palpable power. Mark 21 through 34. And then 40 through, through 5. In just a minute, I want to read verses 40 through 45. But first, I want to say just a few things. So a few noteworthy things. So Mark 1 and 21 through 34 and 40 through 45. We read about a few different miracles, okay? Now, Mark's got a point that he's trying to make about these, about all these miracles in his gospel. And so here's a few of the points that he's making. These are the reasons why they made the cut, right? In other words, these are the reasons why they're in the canon, okay? First of all, we read about Jesus performing a miracle on the Sabbath. Big no-no, not supposed to do that, okay? Don't perform a miracle on the Sabbath, and Jesus likes language like, well, you know, what is more important? So Jesus caused controversy because he was performing miracles on the Sabbath. The next thing that's pointed out is he was healing leprosy, which was believed to be a messianic miracle, okay? Um, so, so healing leprosy is meant to, believe, meant to be a messianic miracle. The demons knowing his name was also something that was incredibly interesting, and there's a whole backstory to that. And also just simply Mark's wanting to point out in this text 
the quantity, that there's multiple miracles that Jesus is performing. Multiple people are being healed. But last thing, but there's a few that he points out. And these few that he points out, they show the public vulnerability and personal desperation of those in need. <laughs> they show a few people that get out in, 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 in verse 40. Like, for, for instance, verse 40 is an example that I'll get to in just a second. But it says, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees in the middle of this crowd. And he says, if you are willing, make me clean. And we see different things happening as well uh, with, with, with those that were demon-possessed. But these people showing public vulnerability and personal desperation not willing just to be part of the status quo in the crowd and say, let's see what happens. They were ready to be participants. They were ready to come forward. They were not about to show any more restraint that if this guy is who he says that he is, then I've got to to get to Jesus. Now, so these people had an emotional connection they had an emotional connection to Jesus. Now, I guess I've been here for a while now, so I don't think you all mind if I tell you how I really think. <laughs> if I tell you some things that are, that are not really get off my chest, but just simply things just to be honest with you. So, many of you, you know, most all of you know that, that you know, I, I come from a different spiritual background than Church of the Brethren. And some of you have caught me here in places at, at times when you popped into the church unexpected and your pastor's going crazy, screaming here in the sanctuary. And maybe some of you have caught me praying in tongues before in, 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 when, in my private time when I thought I was private. I know some of you said, yeah, you were kind of doing some stuff. So I just left and <laughs> others have came in and started talking to me. What I'm trying to say is I know that my background comes from a very emotional, uh, from, from very much an emotional connection. And that is part of my experience. And in, in my experience as your pastor, I think you now know as well that I've shown very much restraint in, in some of those preferences and some of those styles of worship. And so because I know that's true, I know that I am biased personally in that direction. So knowing that I'm biased, though, I've got I to share this with you. That, that my concern sometimes, when I don't see that desperation that emotional connection, and, and you certainly could be showing restraint publicly as well, and you may have that emotional connection with the living God. What I'm trying to say is on some level, I hope you do, because my concern that if you don't have it is that if it's always just minimalist, if it's always just based on tradition, if it's, all, if, if it's always just something that you do on Sunday mornings, then when things get a little tough in your life, when things get really stinking hard, is it going to be really easy for you just to walk away? Or are you going to be more like the man in this crowd that says, get the heck out of my way and give me Jesus because I need him in this moment. And that is, comes from an emotional connection that comes up within you. It's not something you got to have all the time, but I can't help but wonder when the moment comes, when it gets tough, when, when the things, when your faith doesn't make sense to anymore and the status quo isn't working, will you get desperate enough to meet the living God? 
Because this is what happens in this text. And this is what Peter wants to point out to you this morning. Yeah, and there were these people. They needed Jesus. And they pushed the heck out of the way and they got to him. You know what he did? He healed them. And it blew everybody's mind. But that person, that person was changed. That person, he told him not to tell anyone, <laughs> but he couldn't help it. He, he kept telling everybody. He wouldn't shut up about it because of what Jesus did in his life. So this is the messianic secret. See, so I'm going to read this, 40 through 45, real quick. A man, verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees that if you are willing, you can make me clean. In verse 41, Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And Jesus sent him away at once with this strong warning. Here it is, the messianic secret. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded, commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead... He went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So I want, you to, I want to show you something that's going on here between the lines, okay? What just happened to this person was a good thing. What this guy started doing was a good thing because this is what we call the Great Commission, right? We're supposed to go spread the good news. But the, the challenge was that many people started coming that were based upon skepticism, based upon who is this guy? What is this guy all about? And a crowd was beginning to form. A crowd of people that the majority were not nearly as desperate as this guy were. They were just coming to see this thing for themselves. They weren't like John the Baptist's baptism. They weren't really ready for change. And so just in this case that Peter is telling this story, it's like, see guys, Jesus didn't come like we wanted him to. He wasn't about the crowd, and he wasn't like the people we like to follow today that just say all the right things. We don't give a rip about what their character is, but if they're saying the things we like, we'll get behind them. That he wasn't just saying the right things. He wasn't about the crowd. See, we can hear all the sermons we want. We can read all the books. These are all the good things, but the moment what Jesus wanted, what he got to experience with this leper was something personal. And this is who he was, and this is who he is still at this moment. Your personal Savior. And his fear on earth was oftentimes that the crowd would create confusion about this. That this is some Roman conquest. That that now that you're a part of this, we are going to pick up arms and go take over the world and And if I've got this power, where do you see what I'm going to do to Rome? And Jesus knew all along that people had twisted, manipulated ideas of what he was here on this earth to do. Mark's theme in his gospel is also about discipleship. And so that's why we see even mentioned as well, I didn't share it as a point, but mentioned in this first chapter, he calls his first disciples. And so there's this inner circle that he had. That spent a lot of time with the living God. That spent a lot of time with Christ. And they got to know him for who he was. 
and they, they got to be known by him. And church, that's the message that's still loud and clear today. The crowd and the call. There is this universal truth that he wants you. Let me pray for you before we close today. As, as you bow your heads and close your eyes all across this church, I want to just share a few more points and reflection. See, Peter, this foul-mouthed fisherman, found something for him that was not structured like religion. He also found something that was not in line with his masculine idea of conquest. <laughs> he was caught between these two, this new thing of, so we're not going to take over the world and kill people, so we're, but we're also not going to form some new religion that's going to be better than any other religions. Like, Jesus, what you want for us is real. And Peter got to have the experience of Christ looking into his eyes and saying, feed my sheep time and time again, and know that he, recognizing that he knew him better than he knew himself. And this experience was spiritual, it was rooted in love, and it had this idea of pushing forward, onward towards a new adventure. And Peter was saying in this opening, like he's saying to all of us, y'all don't understand. <laughs> this guy is the Messiah but maybe not exactly how you thought he would be. And he's also not the one who the crowd wants to make him out to be. But hear me, he wants you. He wants your heart. He wants to know, he, he already knows you deeply and he wants you to know him. Now those words all across this church this morning. I pray that this stirs in your spirit as your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed. Think of all the things, even in our own form of Christianity, our own form of religion that we pursue that perhaps have nothing to do with Jesus. And he's saying to you this morning, will you draw near to me again? I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. And I'm ready to grow in you if you will only let me. Lord, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you that even after, after that generation to generation, this word has been passed on and it still speaks clearly to us this morning. And now it is not just us. It's ours just to hear. It is ours to respond to. And as we begin this new year, I pray that you is... is they would sense your call to not be just like the crowd. And, and the, the real things don't, don't so much, oftentimes the real things don't just happen at an altar. They happen tomorrow morning when they wake up or, or before they go to bed this evening when they find a secret place and create a history with the living God. And say, Lord, I recognize my identity is first found in you. So, Lord, awaken our church to your presence, to your call in the midst of the crowd. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I invite you to stand this morning for your benediction. May you hear the call from your personal Lord and Savior today and push through the status quo crowd 
and be empowered and renewed by the living God. God bless you and have a wonderful week.